The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Heads, select beer from fridge where you're not driving and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik here to announce show number 178 with guest Kimberly Tripp, recorded live May 25th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Online at www.devexpress.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose head hurts just thinking about this episode, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is uh, Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut, halfway between Boston and New York on the east coast of America, and my colleague, my partner in crime, Richard Campbell, out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. What's up, Richard? Good to be home, isn't it, after that adventure in Europe? It really is. It, you know, it took me two or three days before I really fell back into the, uh, into the, the routine. That's just the jet lag. Had a great time in the Netherlands. As you could tell from some of those crazy stories. <laughs> oh, and the yeah, the show was hilarious, wasn't it? I mean, it's kind of fun making a show ten right. minutes at a time all over a conference, especially when the you know the sparkler in the cake sets off the fire alarm. I mean, that's just great stuff, right there. <laughs> so yes. uh, let's just get right to the mail. Uh, we got uh, four four emails. They stack up, and we go away. This is what happens, folks. The first one is from Dennis V. And Dennis, I'm sorry, I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name because I know I'll get it wrong. But anyway, he's from the Netherlands, and, and uh, Richard and I met him when he was over there. And he told us a little story, and I thought it was so great, and I asked him to uh, send us an email, and we'd read it. So, hi there, Carl and Richard. First of all, thank you for all the hard work you spend on DNR. As a lot of people already told you before, you guys are really making a difference in the professional lives of a lot of .NET developers. I have listened to DNR for a couple years now, and I must say your show is by far the best on .NET programming that I've heard. Besides giving me good technological content that helps me do my work better, 
You also changed my life in a more radical way. I'll explain what I mean. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine decided to start a .NET user group. It was fairly successful, and I did my share of work in the community then. I did speeches, and I was at a lot of meetings, and I promoted the user group, etc. But I didn't really feel as I was being a part of it. I was just a little bit more than an active visitor. Well, last year, that friend decided he'd had enough of the user group. He couldn't combine the work of the group with his daytime job, basically. So he asked me if I wanted to take the whole thing over. My first reaction was that I shouldn't do it. I'm busy enough as it is, and I was not sure I would have what it takes to run a user group. But after listening to your shows and hearing you guys talk about the importance of being part of the community, I realized that this was my chance to do more for my fellow developers. Sure, it was a bit scary at first, but hey, you told me that the rewards of being an active community member were definitely worth the effort. And you were wrong! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wouldn't that be funny? So I took over uh, .ned, N-E-D, for Netherlands, uh, which is the name of the group. Things have been a blast ever since. I have a very good team assembled around me. We organize a lot of meetings, which are very well visited. We're guest speakers on other events, etc. The most important thing, however, I feel like I am really helping my fellow developers. I can provide them with something extra and share my knowledge and truly be a part of the .NET community, and that simply rocks. So if anyone else is thinking about starting a user group, or if they know of a user group in their area, join in, be an active community member, and share the fun. Thanks again, and rock on. Dennis V. Very cool. Great story. Yeah. On a little more uh, focused on the show note, this is uh, an email from uh, Nitin Gandhi uh, talking about SOA and our uh, show with Michelle on WCF. Hello, Carl and Richard. Great show with Michelle on WCF. However, there are Oasis and W3C TCs on SOA. Yeah, we had basically asked Michelle if uh, there was any definitive place where people could find definitions and protocols and things like that and she wasn't so sure about it but uh, this is apparently the place and we shrinksterize it make it easy to find so go to shrinkster.com slash ff7 foxtrot foxtrot7 and that'll take you to the oasis uh, org site and they have all of these committees and documentation on soa and he closes his email with a comment uh, soa is more than a conversation it's a design principle but it does belong to the cio slash architect domain at the moment I thought that was a fairly fair comment to just say, you know, we're still settling on exactly how SOA is going to be implemented. Eventually, it'll be a lot clearer to all of us as we get more implementations yep, out absolutely. there. Absolutely. And uh, if you have any other comments about the shows that we do or things that you want to clarify or whatever, that's what we're all about. So uh, this is an interactive show. Send us your emails to .net rocks at franklins.net. Uh, this one came from an old fan, uh, an old friend who's a fan. <laughs> I don't know if he's old or not. I never met the guy. Erwin uh, Blanc. And he says, hi, Carl and Richard. Lately, I've come across more than a few websites that suddenly have a podcast button. So it seems that podcasting will really explode in the coming year. Uh, even this month, I was reading articles about how podcasting was mainly consumed by the Internet elite. By the looks of it, it is going mainstream. Uh, Many of these new podcasters will just see it as a tool, and there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of it will be radio shows converted to MP3. And here's where the praise starts. You are among the pioneers, making podcasting what it is, making it different from just a broadcast on MP3. 
Really, my commute would not be what it is without it, and I yearn for the olden days when I was four hours on the road every day instead of the measly two hours right now. <laughs> more, commuting. more commuting, please. Honey, this, this means we can that. live further out in the boonies and pay less. This is great. Um, okay, the wife and kids like it better, but uh, he says the two-hour commute. But I really appreciate what you're doing. Richard, he says, you're the ultimate podcast sidekick, and you're Canadian, too. The way you say, oh, like in a boat. Okay, I digress. You and Carl can really keep a show going, and I hope you'll keep finding the time among your other work, breaking fish tanks and whatnot. <laughs> Cheers, guys, and here's to many more. Erwin Blanc, the Netherlands. Isn't that nice? All right, I got one more for you. Yeah, it's a great story, and uh, I appreciate it, Erwin. Yeah. It's good to hear from you again. Why is it I've got all the real serious emails here? I know. I've, I've got all the gratuitous praise, and you've got the real meat, so. <laughs> well, here's a little bit of both. This is this is emails from William oh, yeah. Randlett, and uh, talking about WICFA as his subject, WCF. So, Carl and Richard, I was listening to MLB's latest DNR show on WCF this morning for the second time. Do people listen to the show more than once? That's <laughs> yes. interesting to me. And decided that WCF, WPF, and WWF are sucky names for cool yeah. technology. I came up with WinCom, WinPrez, and WinFlow yeah, as alternative. Go. Okay. An unexpected benefit of this naming is that you can say that anyone who doesn't listen to MLB's show is a WinCom poop. Uh. <laughs> Jeez. You guys have a great program, and I have learned a lo ton of great stuff while wearing out my sneakers. Like some <laughs> other guys, I use DNR to pass the miles on morning runs, along yeah. with Hansel Minutes and Mondays. Yeah. Now I'm doing it with my Windows Mobile 5.0 pocket PC phone. Awesome. Yep, I take a Windows computer with me when I run. Yeah. And then there is an XML tagged rant. Are you yeah. ready for this? <laughs> on another topic, I wanted to weigh in on the TDD skirmish tying uh, in with the Steve Forte show on outsourcing. I think TDD, like OOP, is going to be one of those technologies that becomes pervasive. I figure that in five years or so, there will be many more companies like Adam Kogan's where tests are delivered to the customer with the product and that customers will begin to demand this. TDD doesn't exactly give you this, but it is a mechanism to ensure that your code is testable. That's the primary benefit of TDD. To, you design your software to be testable rather than rewriting it later to have tests. This is one of the edge ideas that developers need to investigate seriously. It's not easy, but then again, the easy stuff can be done by anybody with a six-year-old computer and eight hours of power per day. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I can't disagree. I think, you know... He's tied in more than just uh, Steve's show and Adam's show. There's a lot of discussion around this whole thing and the idea that testing should happen all the time to the point of should be deployed with the product. I there's, can't th disagree. There's obviously two ends of the spectrum, and, and a lot of people tend to, to go one, some, one side or the other. And uh, we've explored those things on DNR and DNR TV, and, and it's a conversation that's ongoing. This isn't – it's not over by any chance, Uh no it, way. It's not over by any means. So uh, if you have any more interesting uh, things to talk about, uh, send them to us at .net rocks at franklins.net. And maybe, just maybe, we'll read it on the air. All right, on to the show. Well, Kimberly Tripp is back on .net rocks. And uh, you didn't hear what we just edited out, but it was basically me saying, I don't have a bio for Kim, and do we need one? I, don't, I think the answer is no. 
Everybody knows who Kim is. She's a top-rated speaker at TechEd. She speaks all around the world. She is the goddess of the database of SQL Server. Oh, my God. No, make it stop. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw you one. She's also very modest. Type in www.sqlhera.com. S-Q-L-H-E-R-A.com. <laughs> right? That's right. The Greek goddess. That was Forte's fault. That was fault, and it still works to this day. That'll take you to her blog. You know what? I use it because instead of going to SQL Skills Blogs Kimberly, I just do SQL Hera. <laughs> I get there faster. <laughs> so I it's have a to admit. Yeah. You're, you're not feeling too well today, though, huh? Sort I'm, of... I'm just, you know, there are so many things going on right now, and it's all coming together, and it's been one of those months where... I had Personal the webcast things. series end, so oh, okay. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just shattered, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we'll take it easy on you. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I'm you. sure. Well, you're not going to take it easy on us if <laughs> my memory serves me right. So, uh, what have you been? I'll be gentle. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> what have you? What have you been thinking about and talking about and and uh, working on lately? Um, building a cabin in the woods with no electricity and oh, growing God, my own food. Oh, God, this show is going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> We're f- it's Richard. <laughs> Here go the sponsors. Uh, no, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm working on uh, a variety of different things, actually, mostly related to content and new resources around the release of SP1 for SQL Server 2005 uh-huh. and a lot of the, the new products some of which haven't been fully announced yet. I know, I know Richard knows a little bit about some of these, but um, there's just some really exciting things going on in terms of SQL Server and database development and even testing and, and QA quality assurance and some of, the things you guys, you know, some of the things you guys started talking about. Um, you know, there are some exciting things that, that I think if people stay tuned and look at some of the announcements that maybe come out around TechEd, uh, I think you'll you'll start seeing some exciting future developments for database developers and testing and quality assurance and and just all sorts of kind of cool stuff coming down the pipeline. So I started to get a little bit involved with that, and I just finished you know a 54-page lab on database mirroring and SP1. So people that go to TechEd can do a hands-on lab that is very extensive, and we we actually are going through. Uh, quality assurance on a DVD that they'll be able to walk away with to wow. to, to basically reproduce the database mirroring lab and, and use a VPC environment for learning. So I just finished that, and, and I've got, you know, three sessions, a couple of chalk talks, and a pre-con at TechEd, so I'm yeah. kind of Ouch. rounding out that stuff. And so it's just I'm in kind of major resource mode right now. So right. And then, of course, I'm teaching in my, my spare time. I just taught, this was really cool. You guys would, would kind of like this. I did an event last week that was for what we jokingly called SQL Skeptics. And it, and it was just, you know, a fun name that we were saying, but it was, it was really for people that were skeptical of whether or not SQL Server was a viable platform huh? for large, you know, VLDB production cases and, and, so it was, no, seriously, it was mostly target, targeted towards Oracle experts that were, were architects in the Oracle space. That oh, so this wasn't about whether the databases are the right tool for this, but specifically Microsoft SQL Server. Exactly, exactly. And just, you know, kind of telling people that, 
that are really knowledgeable about databases and, and have a really strong background in databases, but, but really just kind of proving the point that SQL Server is a viable platform and has an amazing set of tools and resources that can, if it's not necessarily the exact same feature, it might be able to, to still do some of the things that they were doing in Oracle, for example, but just differently. So, I mean, just giving people a different mindset and a different architecture and, and just like I said, a different way of doing things and approaching problems. And, you know, there was big discussions about grid-based computing and, and Oracle Rack. and Probably a lot of know, numbers being thrown around, too. Yeah, right. but but numbers aren't that scary. I mean, SQL Server can play with the big boys in terms of transaction processing, and I, you know, and and I think the things that were kind of the most interesting was just architectural and style differences that, you know, hmm. the mindset of an Oracle person to a certain extent is is one way and the mindset of a, a SQL person is is different. And I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, Oracle is all evil or SQL is the the best thing on the planet. I it's just sometimes what it takes is thinking outside the box, looking at the problem in a different way, and you can find a solution that isn't, you know, feature by feature exactly the same, but yet still performs well, stays available, hmm. you know, and, and so forth. So it, it, was, it was a fun kind of different mindset type of class. And I, it was really fun. I actually just got an email today that said something like, um, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed the discussions around shared nothing and shared everything, you know, I was pleased to note that Microsoft religiously believed in the shared nothing architecture and why it felt that it was the right way to address the data issue. Hmm. You know, that school of thought is almost forgotten when you work with Oracle for a while. Um, so, you know, that was in an email that I got just today. So it's, it's interesting, and, and like I said, it's just a, a different approach to the problem, and, and sometimes the design is, is what makes something work, not... Um, you know, not so much having XYZ feature to do it. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks brought to you by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.telerik.com. I got a question for you, Kim. Do do any of the speakers that speak against you in the same time slot of tech ed ever like send bombs to your house and stuff and give you death <laughs> threats? <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny. I have some of the funniest stories about you know either the same time slot or, but you know, the tech ed organizers have been doing some pretty ruthless things to um, us over the years. Like this year. In, in a very hot time slot. So, okay, so there, there are lots of kind of jokes on how sessions tend to score better when they're later in the week and, yeah. you know, the best time slot is XYZ. And, you know, so there's all these theories, you know, theories on how to have a great session. And, right. and, and you know, I do have to admit that, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning is not the best time slot, yeah. you know. <laughs> you don't get as many yeah. people. For anybody. People are hungover. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so blah, blah, blah. you don't want to be there. They don't want to be there. <laughs> exactly. 
you know, 8 a.m. is totally not the best time of day. But so it's really funny. There's this great time slot that I have this year, which is Thursday, last time slot of the day before everybody goes to the party. It's like 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, something like that. And they've put uh, Steve Riley in exactly the same time slot. And I think Mark Racinovich as well. So they've got these, like, three, you know, probably pretty large sessions all going at the same time by, you know, speakers that give each other grief all the time. And, and so it's, it's just, it's funny. So I think they're, they're giving us a run for our money this year. So Making you work for it. Yeah. So, Kim, you mentioned Service Pack 1 for SQL Server 2005. And the way you talked about it, it's not like this is just a patch of bugs from the RTM. There's new features in Service Pack 1. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, two of the, the features that got a lot of, criticism when SQL 2005 shipped were database mirroring and what they were calling at the time, um, oh my God, I don't even remember what it was called, the uh, SQL Express something. Um, It was basically like a little management studio light applet, and it was meant for querying, and Microsoft made the decision to not allow production use of database mirroring, and they chose not to ship this little Management Studio Lite uh, applet, mostly because the the applet that did exist at the time um, really was a little bit Spartan. So it it wasn't that it wasn't robust. I mean, it, it was really more that it was just, it didn't have a lot of features. It was like this really just limited little query tool. You'd go in You'd execute a query. It didn't even have all the keystrokes of Management yeah. Studio. So, I mean, it was, it was just an environment that I think those of us that used it went, well, okay, if I have to run one query real quickly and not do anything else, I might use it. But outside of that, it's not an environment that I really want to spend that much time in. And, and right. they realized that, and they said, let's not ship it. And then database mirroring um, is one of my favorite features. I even liked it at the RTM time frame. But they decided not to support it for production use, mostly because, and, and if you think about it, this makes total sense, um, if, if, if it's a feature for high availability, you want to make sure that it has been extensively tested in a variety of different circumstances and has gone through uh, a lot of failovers. And in terms of all of their early adopters of the product, you know, having the system set up for high availability is one of the last things you you, mm. you do, per se. You know, you have to get the application working. You right. know, you have to use the new features and design things. And, and so as they kept getting closer and closer to ship, the number of customers that had actually fully tested failover scenarios was pretty low, and they were kind of going, well, do we really feel comfortable in, in this going out as a, a production feature without more testing? And so they made the decision, and I thought this was a great decision to not pull the whole thing from the product, but to leave it in the product, allow you to use it, allow you to prototype with it, allow you to test for it, and all you needed to do was turn on a fully documented trace flag. And the whole feature was documented in RPM. So that's cool, you know? And then um, nobody's going to go full production use the day that a product ships, you know? So it's like... Get it out there. Get people working with it. Ninety-nine percent of the functionality was, you know, good. I, nothing ever ships perfect, right? I mean, if it did, we'd all be out of a job. So, you know, <laughs> ser- seriously, though, every software product, every product, every company on every platform, there are bugs, you know? Sure. And so, 
So, you know, it shipped out of the box. It was in a good state. I, I really enjoyed using it and, and learning it and thoroughly learning it so that, boy, when SP1 shipped, it was like, yeah, this is now supported for production use. We didn't really change all that much. Everything that you did works really well. And, uh, and all they did really in terms of enhancing it, you know, in addition, yes, they fixed bugs, but in addition, they added something called the database mirroring monitor, which is a way for you to get some insight into when you last received activity from the principal if you are in this kind of high availability configuration and, you know, just all sorts of good stuff. So I, I was really pleased. SP1 came out, and I know some people have had issues with SP1 not installing. Even I did on one of the machines that I was working on. I found, you know, this is kind of a cool tip if any of you guys have struggled. If you go into, like, Control Panel, and uh, go to the SQL Server support files, and you repair the support files, that almost always has solved my SP1 failure uh, installation. You know, like a failed install for SP1, I kind of fix it by repairing the support files through this little thing that's in Add Remove Programs in Control Panel. Hmm. So, But outside of that, I haven't really had any problems with SP1. I've been pretty pleased with it, and... Uh, you know, I, those are the two major things that were in SP1. And then, of course, if you go to the knowledge base, you can see the whole fixed list of, of issues and bugs and so right. forth. And, you know, there'll be more. That's cool. <laughs> that's, that's what keeps it interesting, right? Right. It's, it's funny how service packs have evolved. I mean, it used to be that they really were just patches, just fixing little problems. But it's almost like we come to expect something big and new in every service pack. Yeah, you know, I have to admit that's true, but I don't, I'm not actually very fond of that. To be honest, I wish this were SQL 2005A. Yeah. You know, I, or, you know what I mean? I, I kind of wish that they were, were naming these things a little differently and that a service pack really was just bug fixes. Just a service that, pack. Yeah. That's just kind of me, but, but you're right. It, we have kind of almost come to expect it now. And, and they, they're still delivering on that, so I guess that's good, but I, you know, I kind of do wish there were a separation there. But, hey Kim, what is the what's the largest, biggest, most honking application of SQL Server you've ever seen? Um, there's kind of a difference between I've ever seen in production or I've ever seen in design and test. Um, I've, some of the design and test systems I've actually seen are bigger than some of the production systems that I've seen. But um, an interesting kind of banking-based application that I had some insight into. Um, was 20 terabytes in size with uh, 100 gig of growth a month, and it was a, a large partitioned scenario that was, oh, God, 9 million uh, users. I forget how many transactions a day. And um, it, was, it was an interesting kind of dilemma and problem that they were, that they were running into, and it was, you know, needed to be highly available. And so that was, that was kind of an interesting architecture. What kind of hardware was that? It was, um, oh, God. See, the problem with that one is this is now about two years old, and they right. changed the hardware like five times. And I, God, I don't even remember at the time. It was, I mean, it was all fan-based. Pretty serious, to say the least. It was, it was pretty serious. And, and, you know, the funniest part about it is every time I talk to them about various um, hardware features that they could leverage, like something that, that I think is really cool is called Snapshot Split Mirror Backups which is a way to take a SAN uh, implementation and, and... Can you define SAN? Oh, storage area network. So, okay. you know, I, I, 
basically just this big honking heater. <laughs> um, no, yeah. it's, it, but it, sand it, is it, what you use when you don't care how much you spend on storage. Yeah, no, it's just going to be on, incredibly no. reliable and enormous. Okay. Yeah, they're 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 basically rack mounted, um, just discs. Like backplane connected disc. Yeah, they're usually fiber fiber connected and multi path I O as well. Yeah. So so you've got just multiple ways of connecting to these huge rack mounted storage area networks. So okay. And it's it's just massive amounts of discs. I mean, a, Paul Flessner gave a, a, a discussion to our group last week. Our our skeptics and. Uh, he was talking about data explosion and how when he was working about 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago at Baxter, a terabyte of data, you know, was measurable in, you know, square meters. You know what I mean? Like it yep. would take this just <laughs> massive, massive room, um, you know, that... that I know why that is. I know why it's, it's blown up so much is because everybody's storing their porn in there. Yeah. No, no, no. This is now. Come on, don't get me in trouble putting you know Paul Fuster's name with porn. Okay, I didn't. Here we did. go. <laughs> um, no, no, no. It was just you know a massive amount of storage to to have a terabyte. And now, I mean, under Richard's desk, I'm aware of this. He has multiple terabytes of storage that are measured in you know just a couple of square feet. Yeah. You yep. know, and it's just it's amazing to me. Paul also mentioned soon we're going to have. The personal petabyte, you know, where where that you're like walking. Dirty. Isn't God. that cool? <laughs> what the hell is a petabyte? Uh, a petabyte is a thousand terabytes. Good lord! I mean, a the massive amount. Petabyte. Yeah, hey, you guys stay clean now. This is a family show. I, yeah, I would just say, you know, if anyone had moved into my neighborhood, I would probably move away, you know. Here we got a personal petabyte. On, on personal petabyte. In Waterford, Connecticut, yes. <laughs> no, but it's it is amazing how much data has changed over the years and yeah. how 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 much you can fit on you know a, even a USB key oh god here we go yeah um, right you know it's so it's just a, it's just amazing so have have you seen the these little hitachi hard drives that are 4 gigs that are supposedly pda sized oh what? yeah no those are very cool are they yeah, out the, uh, do we have those now last i knew they NAND were and drives huh these, you're talking about the NAND drives that are all solid state? Yeah, no, no, these aren't solid state. They actually look—they're little little platters and little heads and everything. They're about the size of a pair of dice, four gigs. Oh, size of dice? Yeah, they're very small. Well, there's been the compact flash ones for a while now. They're like the size of a book of matches. Right. Yeah. This, this is actually a magnetic drive. Well, now, interestingly, I just um, uh, searched and I found Arc Disk. Four gig hard drive as a USB key, hmm. but this is the one that I was thinking, um, and this one looks like it's about two by two, as in inches, about yeah. two inches by two inches. That's the one I know of. But okay. you say there's like yeah, a thumb drive size one. Yeah, it's it, it looks just like I'm like you took a big five and a quarter hard drive and shrunk it to the size of a you know a pair of dice. Wow. And and I read about this in Popular Science, of all places, and it, it was a Hitachi thing. They were coming out with them. I'll find it. I'll find it and put a link to it. But, you know, supposedly the idea was that these are going to go in uh, in uh, PDAs, you know, yeah. because they Here's... have the speed of a magnetic drive, but, um, you know, but they were small enough to fit in the PDA. Here's an article from a year ago talking about a one-inch, four-gigabyte drive designed to go into cell phones. Yeah. 
That and, must be and priced in quant- priced at like sixty five bucks. So not only you know minuscule, but cheap. Right. Yeah, right. I'm looking online too, and I'm I'm finding a few that are these four gig drives with batteries and so forth, and they're they're very small. They're a little bit more expensive than that. It's these are in the two to three hundred buck range, but um, I, it cool. is amazing. It is it's totally amazing when I think about you know when I had a a dual five and a quarter, you know, floppy running Word off of, or yeah, actually at the time it was uh, Word Perfect, you know, flopping, sw- swapping floppies and, and I just, it just cracks me up, you yeah. know, and I, I, I've only been <laughs> in the industry so long and it just still seems like it's amazing, yeah. the changes we've seen, so who knows, you know. I heard a, about a SQL 2000 uh, installation that w- and it might have been a demo at a at a TechEd or or some some I don't know where it was I'm trying to remember not successfully and uh, it was basically a voting system where they simulated the load of a national voting day and voting is one, a particularly horrible thing because every you know the everybody wants the bandwidth at the same exact time. And, you know, where, whereas most of the time it's dormant, but for that surge of that, you know, those four, six hour intervals or whatever, it's absolutely has to perform. And there were just boxes and, and boxes lost, and boxes. You know? I mean, right, right, right. It's critical data in a, a very short burst time frame. It has to have massive transaction loads. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I so, don't know of that specifically, but. But they basically did it with SQL Server. And uh, you know some serious hardware is probably like Compaq or HP hardware, and and you know they simulated the load that it would you know based on the number of people who vote every year, which I guess isn't that many, but <laughs> less than are you American, about Idol. American Idol. Yeah, or less than American about... Idol. No presidential <laughs> elections, basically. No, they, no, no. I know, but there they is can all handle that. it this week, especially because that was the you know the finale right. of American Idol. They. You know, they were talking about the fact that there were 64 or something million votes cast in the four hours. And that's a lot of people vote more than once, so that's a little bit different than the national election, obviously. Now, if but, we can um, do that, and we're still f***ing around with dimpled chads in Florida, you know, I know what, the hell? That? <laughs> what the hell? And people can vote by, via their cell phone, they can call in, and, and that system in four hours can take 60 million votes. I mean... Do the math on what the transactions per second is for right. that. So, so and, you know, Mr. Bush, if you're listening, you know, Richard <laughs> and Kim and me, maybe Forte, we and Miguel Castro, we could get together and and, and solve this problem in a, you know in probably a couple of days. You know, uh, from not. billable hours, let's actually make it a couple of weeks, <laughs> couple of, but, couple you know. of months, <laughs> couple three or five or six months, seven eight months, but you know, it, it is amazing. Okay, so that's 4,444 transactions a second. Yeah. 4,000. That's pretty impressive. That is impressive. 4,444 transactions a second. That's like a TPM number in the, in the quarter million range. That's big as they get. Yep, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to know what the uh, American Idol hardware is. <laughs> yeah, it would, wouldn't it? I'm actually, I'm, this is what I'm doing while you guys are, we'll find are talking, out. too. <laughs> Call the studio. Get them on the show. <laughs> so, let's talk 64-bit. 
Yeah. I love my 64-bit uh, SQL Server. It's amazing. It's uh, awesome. I've now got a 64-bit system running uh, as a workstation. Kim, have you yeah, gone? Yeah, but how much I, memory do you have? Four gigs. Yeah, see, 64-bit on four gigs is is just, I don't know. Just stretching it, out a little bit. Say that again? <laughs> just stretching just stretching yeah, out a little bit. It, well, you're not you're not seeing the full benefit, you know, of 64-bit because it's in the 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 32-bit address space for Windows, you you're, you're at four gig, and so Windows can do pretty well with that. It, you don't tend to see just huge gains until you start going into the 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 extended memory or the areas where you might be putting pressure on resources that have to live in real memory, right. which you know, stored procedures, locks, um, user connections, those kind of things that have to live in real memory, those are the things that if those are your bottlenecks or your problems and you go to 64-bit, you'll just be like, wow, this is amazing. But I've also had people that, that say to me, you know, we went 32 to 64 and we haven't really seen a big benefit yet. But, but again, they, they are more scalable. They are going to be able to access their data cache more efficiently and effectively, and they'll be able to grow significantly better going to 64. So even if you don't see the benefit now, you should be able to see the benefit. But, boy, when you're on larger memory implementations, data warehouses and so forth, those are the guys that just kind of go, you know, God, our, our data warehouse bill dropped from X hours down to, you know, half that or a quarter that. And, and there's a lot of things there that they can get some huge benefits. But I, I'm running 64-bit at home, too. You know, Richard, I'm, I'm right with you. I'm running a dual-core, dual-proc, 4-gig of memory, 64-bit machine as my main kind of test machine and so forth. So, um, you know, I love it. I love it. But I do run into things occasionally where I want to stick some stupid, you know, little applet or, or some gadget on my machine, and there aren't 64-bit drivers. So I get yeah. irritated. But I, I the, mean, the, the I, killer is the are USB related things, you know, exactly. USB devices mm. stuff where they just don't have the driver for it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just kind of get frustrated with that. I'm like, darn it, you know, I wish I could run this on on this machine. So I still, right now, I'm still struggling with having to have you know multiple 32 and 64 bit machines. But I I I run virtual PC. Well, actually, sorry, virtual server because um, there isn't a 64 bit virtual PC, but. Virtual server, I, you know, Richard, um, and uh, I don't know if you know this. I, I just I just learned this myself, but you guys know virtual server is free? Yeah. Virtual, yeah, virtual server R2 is actually fully downloadable for free from hmm. Microsoft.com, 32-bit hmm. or 64-bit. So very cool. Um, wow. And I've been you know, blown away at how well VPCs perform running on the 64-bit there you uh, go. virtual that, server host. It's awesome. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I, that's what I love doing. Like, on my 64-bit machine, I'll have like two VPCs running, each requiring a gig of physical memory, right? And they're just, I'm switching between them. Everything's cool. I mean, I, I love that. So I have to admit, 64-bit for that. Has now, this been, isn't virtual server. This is a virtual PC you're talking about. Well, I'm sorry. I keep saying VPCs because I'm talking about virtual machines. Okay. I, I actually created the virtual machines on virtual PC, but you can take the same VMCs and VHDs, bring them over to virtual server, and they pretty much run exactly the same. Okay. So I use, I actually move them between my machines. When I'm on my laptop, I'm on a 32-bit machine on virtual PC, and when I'm on my server at home, I'm on virtual server on a 64-bit machine, and I literally just copy the VPC over, start it right up. Hmm. It's awesome. I mean, it, you can move between the environments with no problem, and, and it just, 
it really performed significantly better on the 64-bit machine with four, gig, four gigs of memory. Richard, so, do you still have that card that uh, is like a RAM disk with four gigs that you can put, you can load your entire OS onto? Two of them. You got two of them? Yeah, both. I got two of them. I'm running them as a RAID zero, so I have an eight gig drive that's all RAM. So what do you, do you is that your system drive? Yeah. So you've loaded Windows onto this. Now, is this for your workstation or a server or what? Workstation. So basically, you just go over to your machine, you you snap your fingers, and boom, it's booted up. How long does it take to boot up? Two seconds. <laughs> hey, so Richard, what's what's your... Yeah, tell your, us about this thing. Yeah, your data loss potential here is pretty great, isn't it? What's well, your, actually, the, the, the cards in question, which are uh, made by Gigabyte, have batteries on them. But they're PCI cards, and the only thing they use the PCI slot for is power. As long as the computer is plugged in, even when it's off, the bus is still powered. So the boards are still powered. They don't even use the battery. The only time it actually goes to the battery is if you physically unplug the machine. And then hmm. what's the, so the, the battery backup on it, the life of the battery backup? It's good for a couple of days anyway. So, I mean, the only time I have it unplugged is when I'm physically going to move it from one location to another when I'm servicing it. And if you pull the cards out, they retain what's on them, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because of the battery. But again, that would only be a couple of days that I think you'd be okay there, right? Yeah. And there's a little battery indicator on it that'll show you via LED how much power's left. And that's so cool. I've never had it off for any length of time. Huh. No, because see, that's... That's an interesting scenario. Like, I, I, I do get some questions. I, I really haven't done this for production servers, but I, I do get questions of whether or not it would be useful to use uh, a RAM disk type of configuration for things like TempDB or work tables and so forth. And, and it, it would be interesting. I, I just haven't tested that. So pretty cool, hmm. actually. Yeah, the, the big problem with trying to use it with TempDBs is not big enough, you know, Four gigs, eight gigs—that's just not large enough for the stuff that you may you, you may ultimately use it for. Isn't TempDB mostly in RAM anyway? No, TempDB definitely writes the disk. Does okay. Well, TempDB works just like any other database, and it's it cached. is in memory, um, and it is cached. It's only if there's memory pressure or transactions that can't fit in memory where it would have to spill to disk. But okay. Um, you know, it, it usually does live in memory and, and pretty much stay in memory for a lot of operations. But you mm. do get log activity, um, you know, the longer the, the temporary, option, temporary operations run, yeah. you will see that and write that to disk. So TempDB is one of those databases that lives in memory, but you want to optimize it by isolating the disks as well, if you can, and especially if you get a lot of activity in TempDB. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. What about putting transaction logs onto the this RAM drive? See that that makes me a little nervous. I mean, it, it's 
it's a great, from an optimization perspective, the transaction log is by far and away at the high, high end, one of the areas where, you know, you just have this single bottleneck and kind of moving um, as much throughput to the transaction log is really important. So speeding up the disk, yes, is exactly how we do that. And, trust, and the trust the RAM. Trust the RAM. Trust the RAM. Let yeah, go. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So, so, you know, usually you would go with RAID 10 or RAID 0 plus 1. And, yeah. And the, the thing that I would really want to make sure of, though, is that I never lost that information because the log that's on disk, if you do have a failure um, and you lose the, the data disk, then having the log up to the minute means that during recovery, you'll be able to restore everything up to the time of the failure without data loss. So the one drive that I always want to protect the most would be Exactly that, the transaction log. So putting it on RAID 0 RAM disks, to me, means that you might lose that data. But the question would be, could you do RAID 0 plus 1 or RAID 1 plus 0 RAM disks? No reason you couldn't. The only thing you need is PCI slots for power. So you could gang a bunch of these things up. I was going to say, there are chassis boxes that are just PCI slots and power supplies until the cows come home. You could... Potential. I mean, is it possible okay, you so could if just a hardware vendor scale wants these to out? Sponsor me. I'll do a test. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, I mean, now we're getting to the silly part. I mean, the whole thing about the gigabyte things is they were cheap. You can buy high availability RAM-based drive systems right. today that that are SANs that are you know much higher end. They're just catastrophically expensive. Well, now right. let's talk about reliability, though. What aren't aren't uh, solid state components inherently a little bit more reliable than uh, magnetic moving parts? Well, okay, so there is that debate as well. Um, I'm probably not the best person to geek out on that. Richard would probably. Be I mean, they're than prone I. to different uh, stimuli, different which yeah, different different problems. You know, if you have a lightning storm, you're more worried about the electronics than you are the hard hard drives, but. Uh, uh, but they both wear out. I mean, they both got their issues. So the real thing here is because we're into massive storage, uh, the capacities are too low in all these solid-state devices. It just doesn't make sense to use them that way. Yeah. Okay, so that, right. yeah, that makes sense. Although transaction logs, you know, relative to the size of the database, are generally much, much, much smaller. I mean, just a, a very small fraction in a lot of cases when it's a very well-managed database. And that... That could be actually what what gives you the speed as well as the reliability. If you do backups of the log every minute, hmm. um, then you actually are taking that out of the solid state, um, you know, version of the data per se, and saving it to right. a physical disk, you know, magnetic components. Maybe even putting it over the network to an offsite location. Sort of like a queue, really. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, thinking in terms of mirroring on this with this ultra-high-speed transaction log? Hmm. Well, the, the issue with mirroring would only be the fact that you're kind of going to be tied to the, the, the mirror side of things, right? So if your principal is on these really fast, solid-state disks, and then you're mirroring over to another server that is across the network, <laughs> then and you're in what we call the synchronous form of mirroring, right, which means you have right. to write to the local right across the network, respond, and then say, yep, it's done, then hmm. you're, it doesn't matter how fast your local disk is because clearly no. your, your remote disk is what's going to kill you. Yeah. You definitely um, so, want to do this in more of a logging form. 
asynchronous form. Yeah, I, in, in an asynchronous form, sure. Because, again, the faster the, the, the local drives are, the more you can process and the less you'll even see the impact of some of these things that's happening behind the scenes. So, I, you know, just I hate to, to even get into it because I don't even know what SQL Server would do with these drives, if it, if it would or would not recognize them because it, it can be a little touchy on the drives that you use. Although, I mean, heck, it allowed me to use my, uh, my external USB keys to, to put a database on them, so I can't imagine this being that different. So. Well, and the thing that's clever about these cards is they just got SATA plugs on them. The operating oh, system right. doesn't know that they're anything other than a regular hard drive. Yeah. Okay, so that's very cool then. Um, yeah, you know, I, I would definitely love to do some testing with those, but uh, I, I feel, feel like I, I have a hard time just saying go for it, especially in production. But I, I would definitely sure. say from a testing perspective... Any new hardware that's coming out these days is just, it's, a, it's amazing, and, and it's a blast to test it with. So that would be cool. I, I think that would be a great thing to go to from a speed perspective. The main thing I've been using it for is uh, loading Vista. It's just being able to switch operating systems very quickly on the machine using a cron. It's just imaging off and on it because it's all RAM instead of writing, rewriting the disk each time. Oh, right. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Very. But you're right that we have this sort of fundamental cynicism around uh, reliability. You know, if you're a database person, you care about preserving data more than anything else. Yeah, and see, so it's funny. You're, I, I, you're always falling on the reliability side. You know, I, it's so funny that you say that because I, I get asked all the time to teach performance tuning and optimization, and people just want to know how to make it go faster, how to make it go faster, how to make, you know, yeah. and, and yeah, Let's talk I can about teach safety. You how to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like I can teach you how to lose data really fast. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I want you to be able to, to make your systems perform and make them reliable. So it, it's funny because I, I can't do a discussion about performance without saying, well, if you do that, you might have this anomaly if you have this kind of a problem or, or other failure, you know, secondary problem. So right. I, I think those two are so tightly coupled when you're a database person, you know? Well, the problem is that reliability and uh, stability are both things that you only care about when you don't have them. So you keep forgetting about it. <laughs> That's right. The moment uh, yeah, the, you were always all focused about performance, performance was all you cared about right up until we lost data. Then you really cared about reliability. You know, yeah. that's so true. That's so true. I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had people that say, you know, I had this kind of an environment, you know, and, and I lost XYZ. How do I recover it? And you, you start saying, well, you need to restore from backup. And then, you know, the infamous response is, but I don't have a backup. <laughs> and, and you kind of you go, well, you know, sorry. There, there isn't some backdoor into the, you know, just in case you didn't ever back it up, we backed it up for you. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you're right. Everybody looks well, at it. Well, they do that in office. You know, okay, you've got a good point, you know, the auto save <laughs> that goes on in Word, and it's true, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that is something to a certain extent that, that well, and I, I make that point because I think there's lots of tools teaching us bad habits, you know, yeah, because Word auto saves, you got out of the habit of protecting your own data yourself. Yeah, and it's funny, as much as I protect data in SQL, I totally rely on the word thing, you know. There's been a couple of times where something's <laughs> happened, and I've been like, no, you know, 
know, and then I open it back up, and Word, auto saved your document. And I'm like, thank God. <laughs> well, you know, there are times when you, you, you couldn't do without it, like when, when it crashes, for example. I mean, that has... You know what I mean? You could save and save and save, and then it'll crash in the middle of a sentence, and you're lucky it's there. I mean, it's not so much of a big deal with Word, but we have, you know, Adobe Audition, which is what we use to do our editing and recording on, and that has an auto-recovery feature, too. And talk about a lifesaver. I mean, you can't save your audio files while you're recording, and it amasses a lot of data. So, you know, it would be as if, and you know, you, we'd be recording the show for an hour, and all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. And so uh, when you come come back in, it says, you know, would you like to continue where you left off? And yes, please, please, <laughs> please. Yeah, thank God. Invaluable. I, you know, and I, I, guess, I guess systems like SQL Server could adopt a strategy like that. The problem, though, is this, the amount of data and the size of data. I mean, Word, the documents that we're modifying, you know, are, are at most uh, – tens of megabytes, you know, yeah. and, and that would be even a fairly large Word doc, whereas databases that are much larger, you know, you can't just assume where you should be saving that. And it doesn't actually help you when your hard drive crashes, right? So databases that have that much more data, we have to be thinking more manually in where we should save that and what the resources are and how they're allocated and yeah. how we can keep them performing. So I... The SQL team could probably do something like that, but I think it probably wouldn't be worthwhile just because of the complexities of the size, you know. I don't know. Maybe I'm... So, that. Kim, when are you doing your own show? <laughs> oh, God. I, I was wondering how many minutes it would take before you gave me brief on that. Um, you know, I have mixed feelings. I, I, I have so much fun when I do my webcast for TechNet or MSDN. I, I think I've, I've now finished something like 25 two-hour webcasts online. Wow. You know, I'm so looking at this 11-part TechNet webcast you did. That's crazy. Yeah, I just finished that last Friday. It was our 11th <laughs> part, and it was, you know, kind of I have my Fridays back, per se. But, uh, and then, of course, I'm on this. <laughs> you know, so, All but, right, uh, so, so answer my question. Uh, yes, yeah, I was hoping you'd forget you asked me that question. Um, <laughs> how, how many listeners out there would like to have a uh, to listen to a Kim Trip show? Oh no, Kim, Kim's the host every week. Yeah, hey, thanks, Richard. <laughs> Weekly, <you laughs> every heard. week with Richard, right? You too. Uh, it, you know, it'd be a blast. It really would be. It would be. I, and I, I, I think that that I could have a good time doing it. It's just I put so much effort into the TechNet webcast series, and then blogging Q and As and resources and. And it, it, it does become kind of a, a vortex of time, um, you know. So I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I need money. So, you know, <laughs> if you've got a, a SQL-oriented product that you want to, uh, to share with the world, you know, you're interested in advertising, sponsorship, you know, let's put it together. Oh, man, you're already, you're already plugging for that. <laughs> let's put it together. Yeah, I mean, sponsorship would be great, but it's also even just having the time. And I, I, I know. think... I yeah, think it, I'd it like takes my Fridays back for a little while, and then and then yeah, I, I have been seriously putting thought to like a, you know, a Kimberly Q and A or something because I the thing that I have so much fun with when I do those webcasts is all the great questions yeah. that people ask, and, and they never end. They never and they end. never end. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing. Each each week there was you know different questions, interesting questions, and and it is just a blast. So yeah. I would, well, I, I hope would you can make it work. I really do. I, I do too. I, I'd be 
proud to be a part of it. On the back I end, know, anyway. I, I know. I really do want to do it. Now we're going to get tons of email, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> Tripping with Kim. <laughs> yeah, hey, are you going to make me a song? Because there's some motivation in and you of know, itself. I will make you the trippiest 70s drug-induced song you've ever heard. That would be great. <laughs> It'll be a tie-dye Ben and Jerry's Grateful Dead show song. <laughs> It'll smell like patchouli oil when you play it. Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> man. Uh, uh, what's, right. the, what's the saying? Uh, be careful of what you wish for. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, wow, dude. Great show. So, Kim, we usually ask all of our guests the question when we come towards the end of our show. The question is, what's the coolest thing you've seen online lately? And in your case, and in your case, you might also want to do a hardware version. Do you have a cool toy you want to share with us? Because you are a gadget girl, after all. <laughs> um, any recent? Ga- I have to admit, um, I'm. I'm in. Does it have to be computer related? No, no. Whatever's cool. Whatever okay. you're interested in. So, so Richard knows this because I chatted with him recently. I'm. I'm in the midst of kind of renovating my kitchen, mm-hmm. and uh, there is a gadget that that I just recently decided to to get because I, I really really love steamed vegetables and and certain sauces and and things like that and and there are steamers that you can get that are built into your countertop so Whoa. that like you can literally fill the water in place and put your food in turn the little knobs cook it in your counter and then turn another knob and it drains the water out Ooh. And and it like it just has removable colanders and everything, but it's Ooh. literally everything built into your countertop. And and I just for me, since the one item that we use the most in our kitchen is our steamer, huh. that was just one of those things that it was like, yeah, we've got to get one of those. And, wow. and so that was really cool. I just, that is cool. It's so. Which one did you get? Um, it's from uh, oh god, no. I think it's the Kohler Pro Cook Center. It's actually got a prep sink um, with the the steamer built into that. So it's actually thirty six inches wide. It's a pretty hunky. Oh wow! Unit. So it's part of the part of the sink. It's Kohler. Yeah, hmm. yeah. It's it's um yeah. It's the Kohler Pro Cook Center is the one that I ended up uh, going with because I I wanted to have a prep sink in my island and I wanted to have this steamer and you know I finally found the two of them kind of merged together and it's. Uh, it's a cool little gadget. I mean, I, it, the kitchen's not done, so I haven't used it yet. But uh, are, you, are you a food TV addict like my wife and I? I I'm a a home improvement kitchen designer's challenge <laughs> designer files you know final <laughs> total addict. Yeah. I am I am totally addicted. And you ever seen Iron Chef or Good Eats or any of those shows on the Food Network? So I tend to watch the the designer shows, but. Some of them do have food involved, but I don't. Watch so you never seen Iron like Chef? I've heard of it, but oh I haven't. Oh my god, you got to see Iron Chef! It's insane. You know what I love is is um, Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen. I do like that. Did you? Did I you think see I've that? seen that. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, a, it's a, a little dysfunctional, but it's totally dysfunctional. That's what I love. There's a new show <laughs> like that called Ham on the Street, where this guy goes to diners and. He cooks things up behind the counter, and then he brings that out to people and asks them to identify what it is and weird things like that. Like the ostrich eggs, over easy. Give me an ostrich egg, over easy. 
Yeah, they tried to crack it without breaking the yolk, things like that. Ostrich eggs are monsters. Very strange. I haven't seen that one. I I love I, Gordon Ramsay though is is just he's a blast to watch. So I I actually and cool. just amazing food too. The rest the Gordon Ramsay restaurants that are around. I I actually had the pleasure of eating at one of them in the UK last year with with one of my good friends. We did ladies at lunch and we were four hours kind of sitting back eating at uh, Gordon Ramsay's at Claridge's. It was it was nice. a really really nice meal and I. I just became a fan and then started watching Hell's Kitchen last summer, and it, it comes back on this year on, in June, I think. So I'll have to, to look for that. I think I saw it on once. Yeah. Well, we weren't, we weren't as technical today. Do you guys have any geeky questions that you want? I, I feel well, like you I, know, we're taking it easy on you because, you know, you got a headache and you don't, <laughs> don't feel too good. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> now you know how I felt the last time I interviewed you. Yeah, well, we you had the 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 Tylenol ready. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. It was good just hanging out and chatting with you. No, it was. It was good. I I love chatting with you guys. This is fun. And I, you know, the first time I was really nervous about coming on the show, and the second time I was more scared. <laughs> you know, in terms of the comments and the questions, and and now this time was was really relaxed and laid and back. And I think next time you could do it every week. Do your own show. All right, I know what you're saying. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks for listening. No, that's not what I was saying. Are we taking a break and coming back, or is this the actual end of the show? This is it. Are you booting me off? <laughs> Get your own show, up- Trip. <laughs> <laughs> don't take me off the airwaves. No, don't, don't. <laughs> hey, I'll see you in a couple of weeks at TechEd. Yeah, cool, Carl. Thanks. Looking forward to it. And thanks for listening. Richard, thank you. And Kim, it's always great to talk to you again. We'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a toy boy, life is hard, pay my taxes.